0: To be here this morning on this beautiful Sunday morning in uh, Florida. And uh, places I've been has been cold and uh, snowy and icy and all those kinds of things. I woke up this morning. I know you were complaining about rain, but I was thinking it's 70 degrees. That's a wonderful thing. And so uh, glad to be here and looking forward to a wonderful day. Let's go to John chapter 21, if you will, the Gospel of John and chapter 21. We'll spend a little time in this chapter this morning. Read first, uh, the first couple of verses as a text. I think you'll pick up where we are rather quickly in John chapter 21. The Bible says in verse 1, John 21, After these things Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. And on this wise showed he himself There were together Simon Peter and Thomas called Didymus and Nathanael of Cana in Galilee and the sons of Zebedee and two other of his disciples. Simon Peter saith unto them, I go a-fishing. I go a-fishing. You know, whenever God is trying to do a work, the devil is trying to undo that work. You ever notice that? Whenever God is calling in a person's life, the devil is trying to uncall them. Whenever God is at work in a church, the devil is trying to mess up that work. You think back in the life of Peter. The Bible says way back in Mark chapter 1, verse 16, As Jesus walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Andrew and his brother Simon, Peter. And he said unto them, Follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. The Bible says these two fishermen, Simon and Andrew, they, they left their nets and followed Him. And now for these three years, Simon Peter and Andrew and many others of these disciples have followed the Lord. Imagine what they've seen. Imagine what they've experienced. The things they've heard, the things that they've done. I mean, they've seen people healed of terrible sicknesses. They've seen demons cast out of people that were tormenting them. They saw the dead raised back to life again and on a couple of occasions. The, these disciples had heard Jesus preach and after he would preach, they'd go to him and they'd say, Lord, now de- uh, declare unto us the parable. <laughs> In other words, they'd say, Lord, we're not quite sure we're on the same page. We're not sure we understood the message. Can you explain it to us? Imagine the advantage they had of being with the Lord Jesus Christ. But now, Peter says... I'm going fishing. And when Peter said, I'm going fishing, he wasn't saying, hey, I need to take a little break. I need a day off. I need to, I need to take a little little vacation. No, when Peter said I'm going fishing, he was saying, I'm going back to the old life. I'm tired of following the Lord. I'm done with this. It's not worth it. I'm weary. I quit. I'm going back what I was doing before the Lord called me. What does Satan have to use in our life to undo the work that God is doing? What does Satan have to bring into our lives to try to undo or uncall us from that calling he's given us? As this chapter unfolds, I see three very tense moments in this call of God upon Peter's life and the uncalling of Satan as it progresses here. The first tense moment I see is a, a love of self. You know, Satan is always promoting the, the creature over the creator, isn't he? He's always trying to get us to focus on ourselves. And, and Peter here in verse 3 is setting up the me idol. I go a-fishing. He wasn't concerned about God's will for his life that day. He wasn't concerned what was on God's agenda. He said, I go a-fishing, the me idol. He's going back to serving me rather than thee. I wonder, what are we telling God we're going to serve in place of him? What are we telling God we're going to do in place of his will for our life? John said, my little children, keep yourselves from idols. And I think the idol that we build so often is the me idol. You know, we get a little upset when people tamper with the Bible, don't we? We don't like people messing with the scriptures. I mean, these things are God's word, and and we know that we have the inspired word of God, the preserved word of God, and we get a little frustrated with Groups that try to, you know, come up with some new modern translation that weakens the Word of God or maybe uh, damages some of the teaching of it. And we get frustrated with that. But, you know, I think all of us have our own version sometimes. We have the John Getch version. Not thy will, but mine be done. You know. we, we have the version that reads, Order my steps in my will, and let not thy word have any dominion over me. We we like to read, I delight to do my will, O God. God said in, in Hosea 4 and verse 17 that Ephraim was joined unto idols. Let him alone. When we start building the me idol, God begins to withdraw from our life. When we get self in first place, when we begin to worship self, we're in trouble with God. Because the me idol leads to the me influence. Look again at verse number 3. Peter says, I go a-fishing. They, the disciples listed in verse 2, they say unto him, we also go with thee. It's interesting that our decisions don't just affect us, do they? They, they don't just influence. We, we think, well, I, you know, I'm in charge of my life and, and, and I'm in control of things and I'm, I'm going to make decisions that, that are good for me, but we don't always think about the fact that others are watching us. We see, we also go with thee. There was a time when Jesus met with his disciples in John chapter 6, and it says in verse 66, from that time on many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. And Jesus looked at the twelve and he said, will you also go away? In other words, here's your chance. I mean, everybody else is hitting the road. Everybody else is defecting here. Everybody else seems to have something more important on their agenda than me. Are are you guys also going to leave? And it's easy when when others are going astray, when others are, are backsliding, when others are forsaking the will of God in their life to be influenced by the me crowd, loving the praise of men more than the praise of God. But the me idol, which leads to the me influence, leads to the me inability. Look at verse 3 again. He said, I go a-fishing, they say also, we also go with thee. They went forth and entered into a ship immediately, and that night they caught nothing. You know, the me idol looks good, and it sounds good, and this is what I want, and this is what I'm going to do, and I'm going to be happy, and this is going to fulfill me, and I'm going to have joy, and I'm going to have peace, but God says, okay, have at it, but... We're going to learn the me inability. They caught nothing. You see, when you leave God out of your life, we're nothing. Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. He that abideth in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. He didn't say, without me, you can do a little bit. You know, you can you can do this or you can do that. No, he said, without me, you can do nothing. Neither are we uh, sufficient of ourselves to think anything as of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God. No one is emptier than the person who is filled with self. When you're all wrapped up in self, you're way overdressed. And so we must lay aside self, or God will lay aside us. We see a love of self. But secondly, we see the tense moment as the Lord begins a lesson on surrender. In verse 4, but when the morning was now come. You know, God will let us live for ourselves for a night. Sometimes we'll determine, I'm not going to do God's will. I'm going to go my own direction. I'm going to do my own thing. And God says, okay. But when the morning's come. And it's interesting that when the morning has come, he's still there. We see a distant presence in verse 4. When the morning was now come, Jesus stood on the shore. But the disciples knew not that it was Jesus. Can I tell you something? Wherever you leave Jesus, He's going to be standing there when you decide to listen and come back. He's not going anywhere. And we can put some distance between us and that place. We can put some distance between us and the will of God and we can say, well, I'm going to run over here and we'll see more of this in the morning service today. You can, you can take your journey and you can go somewhere and try to get away from God and get away from His will, but... He's going to be standing wherever you left Him. We are like sheep who tend to go astray, aren't we? As the songwriter Richard Robinson wrote, we prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. And so often we allow things to pull us away from God, to draw us away from Him. And God says, draw nigh to me and I'll draw nigh to you. But when we withdraw from God, that distance becomes great and that presence is not as real as it once was and that voice is not as strong, that conviction in our heart is not as clear. But we see that John, the writer of this gospel, has a discerning perception. Look at verse 5. Jesus saith unto them, Children, have you any meat? They answered him, No. And he said unto them, Cast the net on the right side of the ship, and ye shall find. They cast, therefore, and now they were not able to draw it for the multitude of fishes. Therefore that disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, he never names himself in his own gospel, he identifies himself as the one whom Jesus loved, he said, Therefore that disciple whom Jesus loved saith unto Peter, It is the Lord. Now when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he girded his fishers coat unto him, for he was naked, and then cast himself into the sea. And we see John has a discerning perception here. It's the Lord. You know, it's hard to get completely away from God, isn't it? We can try. We think, well, I'm just going to forget about God today. I know I'm not going to read the Bible. I'm not going to pray. I'm not going to think about God. I'm going to do my own thing. But it's hard to get completely away from Him. We can go for a time, and say, I'm just not going back to church for a while. You know, I just, I'm just going to let that, that go for a minute. And we can kind of do our own thing and go our merry way, but it's hard to completely lose track of that voice. Oh, we try to deny we don't hear it. We try to sort of rationalize God's blessing in our life. Oh, it was just a coincidence. We pretend we don't listen. We pretend not to acknowledge God in our life. But the truth is we know that every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. The very air we breathe, the life that we have, the, the, the existence that we enjoy is all a gift from God. And so John perceives here the Lord. And we see a divine power. As Jesus in verse 6 says, Cast the net on the right side of the ship and ye shall find now they cast therefore, and they were not able to draw it for the multitude of fishes. And John discerns that it's the Lord. And, and verse eight, the other disciple came in a little ship, uh, for they were not far from the land, but as it were two hundred cubits. Dragging the net with fishes, as soon then as they were come to the land, they saw a fire of coals there and fish laid thereon and bread. Jesus saith unto them, Bring of the fish which you've now caught. Simon Peter went up and drew the net to the land full of great fishes, and hundred and fifty and three. And for all that were so many, yet was not the net broken. What a miracle. Imagine, I mean, try to put yourself in the shoes of these disciples. They had been out all night. Now, these were professional fishermen. Yeah, they'd been away from it for a while, but they still knew that Sea of Galilee. They knew that Sea of Tiberias. They knew where the fish were. They knew the time of the night to fish. They knew how those schools of fish were. They they knew how to cast those nets. They, They knew everything there was to know about this particular profession. And they had done it with all the skill and expertise I'm sure that you could have. And yet they caught nothing. And Jesus shows up and just speaks the word and the net's full of fish. A divine power. And it intrigues me in this passage that he gives us the exact number of the fish. Did you notice that? 153. Now, I I find that sort of interesting because there are a lot of numbers in the Bible that are are sort of rounded off, we would assume. I mean, they're they're, they're just kind of rounded off, I suppose, for easier reading. For instance, in Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, as Peter preaches, how many people got saved that day? Three thousand. Anybody want to challenge that number? Well, if you read carefully, it's not three thousand. It's about three thousand. Verse forty-one. Then they that gladly received his word, were baptized on the same day. There were added unto them about three thousand souls. About. So it appears it's a rounded off number. Now I tend to think there were more than 3000 because I don't think the Holy Spirit would have embellished it to impress us. Right? We would have. I mean there's there's about 250 people here this morning for Sunday school. And okay? it's just sort of rounded off, but we would tend to round the number up, wouldn't we? I mean we would tend to, you know, the fish was uh, about not that big, you know. We, we tend to make it a little bigger than it actually was, and, and, and but I don't think the Holy Spirit would have done that. I think the Holy Spirit would have probably said about 3,000, when in reality there maybe were more than 3,000. When Jesus fed 5,000 men plus the women and children, were there exactly 5,000 men? Did somebody count? <laughs> They did have them sit by 50s, so maybe they did, but it almost appears that exactly 5,000 people, well, it's probably a, a rounded off number. Uh, There are uh, uh, numbers in the Old Testament about certain uh, uh, numbers of of cattle or sheep that a man had. And they seem to be rounded off numbers as they are uh, usually 5,000 or 3,000. We see armies that had 3,000 soldiers or 30,000 chariots. I don't know that those were exact numbers. They seem to be sort of rounded off. But here it's a specific number, isn't it? A hundred and fifty and three. Now, it would seem then that because it's obviously not a rounded off number, that it must have some significance. Now, I don't know everything I'm about to say. I don't know much about this particular subject, in fact, but I've been told by those who do that there are 153 species of fish in the world today from which all fish in all bodies of water come from. Now, if that's true, the reason I believe God then gives the number, and he would know how many species of fish there are. And the reason he would put 153 in this net, to me, is saying to us, because remember, he called these men from the profession of fishing for fish to the fishing of men, and I believe by giving us that number, he's saying, you know what, I want all men to be saved. Somebody from every nation, every tongue, every people, every tribe. I want everybody to be saved. God isn't looking to just save, you know, certain types of people or certain groups of people or or certain classes of people. God wants everybody to be saved. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. In other words, all the species. (laughs) You want to put us in those categories. He wants all to be saved. And it's interesting, as the Bible says in verse 11, and yet there were so many, yet was not the net broken. Now again, if you read the Gospels and you come across some fishermen in the Gospels, you know what they're usually doing? (laughs) Mending their nets. I mean, almost always when you find a fisherman in the New Testament, he's always mending his nets. Why? Because the nets were always breaking those nets in that water would, would, would rot, they would get soft, they would tear apart. And so every time, every day, as they'd bring those nets in with the fish, the nets had to be mended. They had to be sewn back together. They were always breaking. But in this miracle, as the net was full of fish, 153, yet was not the net broken can i tell you something ladies and gentlemen whatever god tells you to do in this revival as you act in obedience to that command you can mark it down the net's not going to break there there are people think well i don't think god could save me i'm i'm just i'm just a wicked guy and i i just don't think god could ever save me listen the gospel net won't break for you it can hold you Sometimes we think, well, I just I just couldn't get that sin right in my life. I mean, it has too many repercussions. I mean, uh my my family, my my marriage. I mean, uh if I start if I start getting things right, listen, the net won't break. People think, well, you know, I think God's calling me to to, to ministry or you know, I meet young people all over the country and they, they say, I, I think God may want me to go to Bible college but I don't know where I'd get the money or I, I don't know if I could do it academically. I don't know if I'm good enough. Or Listen, the net won't break. Whatever God is asking us to do, the net's not going to break. God may impress upon your heart to go knock on your neighbor's door and you may go with fear and trembling thinking he's going to hate me, he's never going to talk to me again. Listen, the net won't break. Obey the Lord unto him that's able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that worketh in us. You see, it's not up to us to keep the net together. That's his job. And so obey the Lord. See the power of God in your life. I can do all things through Christ, which strengthens me, being confident of this very thing that he which hath begun a good work, and you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. What a divine power here is manifested in this miracle. So we get self out of the way and we get surrendered to God's will. Nothing is impossible. But we see a third tense moment as the Lord now challenges these men, and particular Peter, particularly Peter, to a life of service. As they come into land, Jesus already has a fire going there, and He's already got some fish on the fire, and He's prepared breakfast for them. And we see now an interesting conversation. In verse uh, number... Uh, Fifteen. So when they had dined, Jesus saith to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me more than these? He saith unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. He saith unto him, Feed my lambs. He saith to him again the second time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? He saith unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. He saith unto him, Feed my sheep. He saith unto him the third time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? Peter was grieved because he said unto him the third time, lovest thou me? And he said unto him, Lord, thou knowest all things. Thou knowest that I love thee. Jesus saith unto him, feed my sheep. A supreme preeminence. Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? The Bible is a book of words, isn't it? We don't have the Bible in video. So we have to supply the video as we read it. And this is one of those passages where if you don't, you're going to miss the meaning. When Jesus said to Peter, he said, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me more than these? Well, what are the these? Well, it doesn't say. But if you would have been there, you would have known exactly what the these were because Jesus would have been pointing at the these, right? Yep. Now, that's the part we can't, we can't see because it's just words. So what were the These? They're sitting there, they've eaten, and and now Jesus starts this very intense conversation with Peter. And he says, Peter, do you love me more than these? Was he pointing to the other disciples? Peter, do you love me more than these guys? Was he pointing maybe to some houses along the shore of Galilee? Peter, do you love me more than these houses? I think he was pointing at the fish. That were there on the fire, or perhaps some fish over on the dock of the boat still flopping in the nets. Peter, do you love me more than these? And he wasn't asking Peter, Peter, do you like me more than fried fish? He was saying, Peter, do you love me more than what the old life has to offer you? Because that's the whole crux of this, isn't it? The whole chapter starts out with, I'm going fishing. And now Peter points to those fish which represented the old life, the world life, the attractive sin life to Peter. And God says, Look, Peter, I got to know something. Do you love me more than these? I did an internship between my junior and senior year in college up in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And I went up there, served in a church for the summer. I had done so the summer before, same church, and really enjoyed it and, and it 's where God called me to preach it 's where God called me to evangelism and wonderful decisions made in that internship and I was coming back to college my, my senior year, and I was coming back early because I was playing football and, and we had two a days that started a couple of weeks before uh, school actually began, and so we had to be in by a Saturday night curfew and and Sunday then in the services, and Monday morning we were starting the uh, two-a-days. And uh, so I was making my way from Minneapolis back to school, and it wasn't exactly right on the way, but there was a young lady that lived in Rockford, Illinois, that I hadn't seen in four months. And uh, we had been dating about three and a half years (laughs) And uh, weren't really serious about anything. She had already graduated, was teaching there in her home uh, church that had a Christian school there in Rockford, Illinois. And and uh, and uh, I thought, you know, I'd, I'd sure like to see her. We, we, we didn't live in the age of cell phones. <laughs> we lived in the age of stamps. <laughs> so, uh, so we had been riding a little bit, you know, through the summer and kind of keeping up. Phone calls were expensive in those days, didn't have cell phones and all that kind of stuff. And so... Uh, but, but I thought, man, you know, I could, I could swing by there and, and then get back to the college. And so I called her and I said, hey, you think I could come by Saturday afternoon and, and I could leave Minneapolis early and get down there maybe uh, mid-afternoon or so? And she said, oh, yeah, it'd be great. And I talked to her dad and he said, yeah, that would be fine. And so I went down and, and uh, we enjoyed a, a, a cookout there in the backyard with her family. Her siblings came over and, and uh, we had a great time. And I was getting kind of close to me having to leave to get back up for curfew. And, and we, had, we had maybe 30 minutes or so. And we had just finished up with the cookout. And her dad was putting the grill away and putting some things straight in the backyard. And she and I sat on the back of my car, on the trunk of my car, in the driveway of 637 Atwood Avenue in Rockford, Illinois, west side of Rockford. We're sitting there and we're just having a normal conversation. I mean, just you know talking about our summer and, and, I, and the school year coming up, and she's teaching, I'm going back to college, and, and we're just having this normal conversation. And all of a sudden, I mean, out of nowhere, out of left field, out of a blind side hit. she looked at me, and she said, "John, do you love me? Whoa! <laughs> I, I wasn't expecting that. We had we had not used the L word yet, and I, I I I just it came out of nowhere. And and I was like a deer in headlights, you know. I I it just it it just took me by surprise, and I. And, I, I, you know, my mind is going 100 miles an hour trying to, trying to think of the answer. And, and I, I, wasn't, I, I didn't know. I mean, I knew I still loved football. I mean, I was going back for two days. I mean, I was ready. I was in shape. I couldn't wait for my senior year of football. I mean, I was ready, and I loved football. Did I love her? I don't know. I love dorm life. I, I, my parents lived one mile from the campus where I went to college, and I lived in the dorm all four years. I loved it. I loved the camaraderie. I loved the horseplay. I loved the practical jokes. That's why I'm in a college now. I can, I've written so many demerits over the winter break. I haven't even been there. They just tell me what's going on. Give them this. I already know because that's what they gave me. Okay. So I, I love dorm life. I, I really enjoyed it. And so, did I, But then I love her. And after a long pause, I said, I don't know. That, that wasn't the answer she was looking for. You know, the pressure of that is what Peter's feeling here. Peter, do you love me? I mean, a few hours ago, you said, no, I'm going fishing. Now, Peter, I got some plans here. I've got some things I want to do with your life. I've got Pentecost on my mind, but Peter, i got to know something. Do you love me? A supreme preeminence. You know, it shouldn't be hard to love the Lord. We love Him because He first loved us. And if we do in fact love him, our love will lead to a suffering people. Did you notice here in this conversation that each time when Peter said, yes, Lord, I, I love you. And, and, and you could study this and you find there are different words used in the Greek in his response. And so his response is a little bit of a, a, a growing response here. And you can study that. But, 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 the, but every time he said, yes, Lord, I love you, Jesus responded with, feed my lambs, feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. You see, our love for the shepherd is demonstrated by how we treat the sheep. Don't say you love God, but you don't like being around his people. Well, there's just certain of those people at church I just, wait wait a minute now we ought not to be singing, my Jesus, I love thee, when we don't care for the sheep. To claim to love God and complain or be critical about the ministry to sheep is is uh, hypocrisy. You can't adore the Savior and avoid the sheep. A suffering people. Which then leads the Lord to Exhort Peter to have a single purpose. It's interesting. Apparently, the Lord is okay with Peter's response, Yea, Lord, I I love you. And in verse 18, Jesus again says, Verily, verily I say unto thee, When thou wast young, thou girdest thyself and walkest whither thou wouldest, but when thou shalt be old, thou shalt stretch forth thy hands, and another shall gird thee and carry thee with thou wouldest not. Now that's a long sentence. What in the world is he saying? Well, he explains it in the next verse, doesn't he? Verse 19. This spake he, signifying by what death he should glorify God. He said, Peter, when you were young, in fact, a couple hours ago, you did pretty much whatever you wanted to do. You went whithersoever thou wouldest. But now, if you really love me, it's going to cost you your life. You're going to die for me. Now, God doesn't tell all of us that. But that's what he told Peter. You're going to die for me. Peter, you're going to be martyred. He's predicting Peter's death. And by the way, Peter was indeed martyred according to history. He was crucified. Jerome, the historian, records that Peter, at his own request, was crucified upside down. For when they brought Peter to the cross, Peter requested that he be crucified upside down, his head being downward, his feet upward, for he said, according to Jerome, I am not worthy to be crucified in the same manner and form as my Lord. And Jesus is predicting that here. And, you know, Peter doesn't really bat an eye at this. He I guess, says, okay. But it is interesting, the conversation. In verse 20, then Peter, turning about, seeth the disciple whom Jesus loved. Oh, that's John again. Which also leaned on his breast at supper and said, Lord, which is he that betrayeth thee? Peter, seeing him, saith to Jesus, Lord, and what shall this man do? (laughs) I love these guys, don't you? They are so human. They are so like us. Peter's, Peter's saying, yeah, Lord, I love you. Jesus said, well, Peter, if you love me, you're going to die for me. Okay, great. What's he going to do? Isn't that like us? You know, we, we kind of say, okay, Lord, I'm in. What about everybody else? You know, it's just interesting the, 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 the way we think sometimes. And, and, and notice Jesus' response in verse uh, uh, 22. If I will that he tarry till I come, what is that to thee? Follow thou me. Peter, you've got to stop looking at John. You've got to stop looking at everybody else. You've got to stop following uh, what you want to do. And you've got to get a single purpose in your life, and that's to follow me. Follow me. I played my last football game late November of that senior year at North Dakota State University. It was one of the coldest games I have ever played in my life. It was a horrible game. The weather was very inclined. We lost the game. We were never in the game. It was one of those games. We made that long trek back home to college, and I remember cleaning out my locker that next week and hanging up my cleats, as it were, realizing that my football career was, was over. Oh, I would go back and play in some alumni games for about 20 years or so. Every once a year, I'd go back and throw those cleats back on. But, but basically, football was over. And, and you know what? I was kind of glad about that. Ten years of football was enough for me. And that semester was winding down, and I was preparing for just a few credit hours that I had left my senior year, my spring semester. And my thinking began to change a bit. I realized that I would be graduating soon, and there were some decisions ahead, and I called that young lady in Rockford. I said, hey, it's uh, it's Christmas break. Um, I know you got some time off. I've got some time off. Do you want to get together? She said, sure. I said, well, I've got it set up where we can go to the Fireside Inn. The Fireside Inn was a restaurant about 20 miles from the campus, and it was, it was a very expensive restaurant, and, and you could get permission by the school to go there on certain occasions. It was a special occasion. You could, if you followed some parameters, you, you could go. And it was, it was just, most kids couldn't go. It was just too expensive. And I had saved up some money, and I wanted to take her there. I'd heard a lot about it. And so I said, we well, can go to the Fireside Inn, and I've got a place for you to stay up here if you can come, and we can, we can go out to eat, and then you can spend the night before you go back. And I said, man, it'd be great. So she said, okay. So she came up, and we went to the fireside, and we had a great time, great meal, great atmosphere. Everything was perfect. Got back in the car. We started driving back to the place where she was to stay, and I took a little detour. And we pulled into the parking lot of Riverside Park, a place where I played a little football (laughs) Pulled under one of the light standards and I parked the car, shut it off, and she looked at me like, What are you doing? And I said, I have a question. I said, Will you marry me? And she laughed. (laughs) That's not a good omen. (laughs) She laughed. And she said, when? When we're 85. (laughs) (laughs) We've been dating now for four years, and we were kind of the brunt of all the jokes on campus. You guys are going to date your whole life. And I said, no, I I was thinking maybe this summer. And she looked at me like, what kind of a cruel joke are you playing here? Total disbelief. So I reached in my pocket, And I pulled out a little white square box. I was going to do it at the restaurant, but I chickened out. And I took the cover off, and I pulled out a diamond ring. She said yes. Now, how did she know? Four months ago, when she said, do you love me? I said, I don't know. How did she know four months later I was committed enough to marry her? The ring, the ring. You see, the diamond ring in Western culture represents commitment, doesn't it? And when a guy spends an arm and a leg on a diamond ring, and I did, man, $100. You're laughing. Minimum wage was $1.10 an hour. I was making 97 cents an hour after taxes hanging drywall with a construction company. Gas was 28 cents a gallon. You could buy a Big Mac fries and a Coke at McDonald's for 67 cents. It's a different era, $100, okay? That ring said, Commitment. You know what God's saying today? Show me the ring. I I hear you say I love you. I hear you pray it. I I, I hear you preach it. I, I, I hear that. But my little children, let us not love in word and in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Show me the ring. Revival is about showing God the ring. It's about making some commitment to our love for the Lord Jesus Christ. May we not allow Satan to undo what God's trying to do. Boy, there's some great days ahead for Peter, aren't there? Some magnificent days. But Peter, do you love me? Do you have a love for me? If you do, then I can use you. And if you do, show me the ring. Let's see it. Let's bow for prayer. Lord, help us today. As we pursue this matter of revival, I pray, Lord, that while you work in our hearts, we know Satan will do everything in his power to work against it. And we've all experienced that to some degree or another. And so it would be no different this week, I'm sure. And so, Lord, help us to stay focused. Help us to stay in tune with what you're speaking to us about. And may we not let anything uh, dissuade us or detour us from the perfect plan that God has for us. Thank you for loving us. It gives us the motivation to love you. And help us now with that love to serve you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.